So then. If you awaken from this illusion, persistence of vision, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast. Hello, folks. Hello, folks. Who are you? I am LBDO. <laughs> I am Lance Fever Myers. This is the Persistence of Vision podcast. Um, if you want to check out our website, it is pov-publishing.com. There you can find comics by world-class artists. You can read poetry. You can uh, see the links to all our past podcasts. You can also uh, find links to my novel, Why So Much, by Lance Myers. You can also find a link to go buy LB's newly released novel, The Goddamn Fool, which uh, we had our release party last night, and it was fantastic. Yes, if you missed that party, I will be pitying you for the rest of your mortal days. (laughs) But you can buy a copy of the book on Amazon. So go check it out. It is fantastic. While you're there, pick up a copy of mine. And you can also pick up a copy of a book called Suspect Red by Laura Elliott. We have Laura today. Yes, we do. And we're very delighted to have her. Welcome aboard, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm really sorry I missed the party last night. Well, we are so sorry that you couldn't make it. <laughs> that we understand that you, it would have involved a few thousand miles of travel. It would have. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's no excuse. Where are you calling from, Laura? Uh, from Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. Okay, fantastic. Well, your book was uh, really, really fun and really interesting and very educational as well. Uh, Suspect Red is its name. Um, tell us a little bit about it. Tell, tell the readers, um, give us your... Your summation, without any spoilers. Without any spoilers, okay. Uh, This is my eighth, I think, uh, historical fiction for young adults. I was a journalist for 20 years in D.C., um, writing primarily about women's issues and mental health and health issues and some performing arts. When I took a sidestep, I call myself an accidental novelist, I took a sidestep (laughs) to do a book that was inspired by my dad's um, uh, experiences in World War II as a B-24 bomber pilot. Oh, and wow. I've just, oh, it was it was an amazing journey, that novel. I mean, I have to tell you, if you can't write a good World War II book, you have no business being a writer because <laughs> <laughs> it's just fact. You know, if you just absorb the anecdotes and do the reading, I mean, there's just so many moving life or death kind of choices that people made, and they truly were the greatest generation. Anyway, I continued on. Um, with doing, rather than going back to the magazine, uh, was the Washingtonian magazine. I decided to keep on with these um, highly factual, highly researched, as if I were reporting, as I did for years and years, uh, kinds of historical novels um, that are laced with, you know, facts and issues of the time period, hopefully within a good story that entertains kids. So I had just finished up one novel and um, was in Boston right before that, Um, you know, just heartbreaking and horrible um, bombing that occurred at the Boston Marathon. Mm. And we immediately, if you think back, I think it was in, I think it was 2013 that that, yes, 2013 that that happened. You think back, we were kind of in the midst of and and then plunged even further into 
debate about how to protect Americans, you know, um, national security versus um, individual rights of privacy, you know, right. surveillance kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, a proactive, careful screening of people who are coming into the country versus racial profiling and, you know, racial labeling. So I thought back to when, I mean, it was such a difficult conversation that was going on in the country at the time. And I know that often when you have fairly heated political conversations, that um, finding a time period that is similar in the topics being discussed or the issues being faced, the challenges to, to society, that going back in history a little is sometimes finding a parable for that. Um, it really kind of takes the heat of immediacy out of the conversation while providing insight into the current events. Just like um, Arthur Miller did with The Crucible, um, you know, so many people, it, you know, it is ostensibly about the Salem witch trials, but what it really was about was the McCarthy Red Scare that was going on at the time that he wrote it. It was very much a parable for that time period. Um, so I realized in thinking about how could I um, you know, address these um, topics with teenagers who are will become our next leaders and our next voters, and we want them to be thinking and um, analytical consumers of news, you know, and participants in our democracy, that the McCarthy period really um, addressed all of those issues kind of in spades. The issue of, um, you know, a legitimate fear and a legitimate danger then are reacting to it with hysteria in such a way that we, you know, delve in mob mentality and xenophobia and often political rhetoric that, like, came out of McCarthy that is, um, you know, hateful and, um, and stereotypical and inflammatory and fear-mongering. So um, it's a fairly complicated topic. Uh, time politically, a lot of different issues, and I decided that the best way to write the novel was to actually pull out historical events um, and splatter them <laughs> as primary documents, basically, as, you know, the, the things that the readers could look at themselves and analyze for each individual chapter, and um, wrote the chapters as self-contained months, starting from uh, July 1953, when the Rosenbergs were ex executed um, for espionage and spying, supposedly, for the Soviets. Um, and ending a year later in um, um, July 1954 um, with the Senate hearings with McCarthy versus the Army, where that kind of legendary uh, attorney uh, for the Army um, spoke those wonderful words, to have you no sense of decency, sir, which kind of broke the psychic hold on the nation that McCarthyism and the Red Scare and red baiting and fear of communism infiltration and subversive thoughts, um, the kind of, you know, stranglehold that, that had been on the United States during that time. So I took two boys. I decided to, while parsing out the, um, the factual, um, most pithy things that happened within each month and, and dropping them for my readers to see at the beginning of the chapters, and then the chapters often contain those events or news events, I decided that the best way to show um, the kind of effect on teenagers that all the national dialogue that was going on during that time um, was to have one boy, and uh, I'm sorry, in, in almost two equal protagonists, 
one on either side of the spectrum of the political argument during the Red Scare. So I have a son of an FBI agent who really is, you know, the true believer in democracy and trying to make um, the world safe for democracy as a World War II veteran. Um, and then the son of a diplomat who was very much um, uh, a servant of the country, but uh, as a diplomat in State Department um, employee was often kind of the target of speculation. Um, and the son also of um, a Czechoslovakian artist with a pretty beatnik and, and um, progressive big sister. All the types of people who would have been considered suspect during that time in terms of their political leanings, their involvements in things like civil rights movements or pro-labor movements or art movements that might have seemed to somehow question the status quo. That's a long answer to your question. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. There's so much in in that answer. I I, I want to pick apart each and every piece of it. Um, <laughs> Good. Okay. <laughs> so you're you know okay. So you you mentioned of course it is very complex and it is very complex. I mean yes. that time and the time uh, that we're in right now. Um, yes. And and I think one of the things that makes it so complex and what you mentioned is that there are such. There are legitimate fears. There are legitimate concerns about safety yes. involved in these things. And so, you know, I don't know if someone like McCarthy set out to, you know, in an innocent way to really try to protect America or if he was just an opportunist. Speak on. Can you speak on that a little bit? Like, you know, it's 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 interesting to me to try to figure out the character of someone like him and and know whether or not his his real base concerns were uh, pure at heart. I mean, obviously he probably thought he was a good guy, but, um, that's what makes it so difficult. I think partly. Yes, it is. I think, um, I think he believed that he was making America safe again. <laughs> um, I really, <laughs> I really, I really do. I mean, I don't agree with his politics, but I think he was somebody, he served in World War II. You know, he served in the Senate. I think he really, and there, there had been these legitimate Threats, you know, right before um, McCarthy kind of burst onto the national stage, um, there had been quite a, a trial of Alger Hiss in the State Department, you know, for supposedly leaking um, documents and information to the communist Soviets. Um, but um, Carl Fuchs, who I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, but he had just, who had been um, involved, been a physicist on the Manhattan Project had just confessed to passing on secrets. And then there had been the, um, uh, you know, the Rosenberg's trial. Well, that came afterward. I'm sorry. And then we were in the middle of the Korean War. And the Korean, um, uh, you know, uh, North Korea's being uh, kind of getting, being armed. It was being done by the Soviets. And we missed that intelligence because of um, a decoding um apparatus that we had suddenly be being rendered obsolete because of spies within um, that agency in the United States. So there were a lot of things that had happened that were dangerous and were um, unnerving. And of course, the predominant thing is, you know, he splashes onto the stage only five years after the end of World War II. We've just seen the horror of an atomic bomb and the Soviet right. Union has just gotten theirs. Yes. So, you know, I mean, the, the tensions and the fears were huge during this time period, the Cold War. We just don't really think about it that much now because but back then it was it was a real it was really frightening. So I think McCarthy believed that he was genuinely 
addressing a threat. Now, did he go to the extremes and become fanatical? This is the danger of fanaticism, right? And becoming mm. zealot. Um, right. And because he saw no black and whites, he saw, I mean, I'm sorry, he saw no grays. He saw only black and white. There's a quote from him at the beginning of the book that, um, let me find it, that there is no, there is no, dis, there are no degrees of disloyalty. A man is either lawyer, loyal or disloyal in mm. the United States. That right. Mean, right. So, I mean, that, <laughs> that doesn't allow for a whole lot of gradation in terms of if you think, for instance, that labor unions should have, you know, health care benefits, you know, right. that wasn't the status quo at the time so that that could be seen as a subversive, potentially communistic mindset. Right, right. And, you know, that's that's exactly what I mean, you bring it up in your blog. And I, I love the the, entry, the blog entry that compared uh, the McCarthy era to, to what we're going through now. And, and that particular quote really does like bring out the, the, the similarities there, the, the act, the idea of loyalty of blind loyalty. Oh my God. Yeah. Very, very powerful. (laughs) Yes. And very much to him, you know, there was this kind of cult thing about him. Um, and he was, he was, see if you see the similarities, he was this Midwestern, um, kind of bluff, um, uh, you know, uh, backroom poker dealing charismatic bad boy. Yeah. who, uh, you know, took on the coastal elites, um, called them eggheads, made fun of them, um, you know, spoken kind of blunt, I don't want to say simplistic, but blunt slogans, right? Um, yeah. And made people, you know, they, and he fed on a growing nativism because people had come home from the horrors of World War II. They wanted to stay home. They wanted to, you know, focus on their own families and their own way of living. Um, so it was this growing nativism. There was this growing fatigue with international politics and the East Coast elite, those FDR New Dealers that were still kind of, you know, <laughs> running the country, right? Are you, yeah. you know, there was yeah. this huge discrediting of the media as being, um, you know, biased. Didn't use the word fake, but, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, the kinds of similar. And then having these, I want to find them, this kind of catchy phrases of you know mccarthy immediately coined these character assassination labels of pinko dupes fifth fifth sorry fifth amendment communists fellow travelers you know or the right you know the 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 threat of better dead than red Uh, right yeah and sort of goes along with lying ted crooked Uh, uh, but back to back to the book um, you know, it's you. funny. <laughs> well, you mentioned, um, you know, the, since the Muslim ban, there's been a, a fire hose of, of, you know, just travesties just spewing from, um, you know, this this uh, current administration. Uh, and it's funny when I was reading your book. So, you, like you said, you have it separated out into chapters that uh, go month by month. And at the beginning of each chapter, you have um, news clippings of, of what was happening in that month of that year. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, my God, every month of this year had something huge, some huge landmark thing happening. And I, and, and I was thinking how crazy the time must have been. And then I realized, well, every month (laughs) that we're living right now (laughs) has the same kind of strange headlines that just pop. It's just really substantial all the time. Yes, and I think that they probably had the same kind of issues that we do, sort of like every day there being something kind of 
um, startling or even cataclysmic in terms of, um, you know, what the ripple effects would be from it. Right, right. And and just you, you want to hit pause and try to figure out the, the implications of every little thing. But yes, it yes. just it just keeps coming. Yes, <laughs> Although, of course, actually, I hope one of the things that this book will help. And it's, again, um, you know, tipping my cap in thanks to educators and librarians um, who are trying so hard to create something they call media literacy right now, mm, right. which is to get kids to, with all their tweets, all their Facebook, all the memes, all the stuff that comes just bombards them all the time, finding fact within, mm. you know, what are the legitimate sites that are going to give you hopefully a comprehensive and balanced account of what actually happened that day right. you know, with without spin, without... Um, you know, without, um, yeah, without spin or without um, um, just trying to, uh, or propaganda is the word I'm, but the, I'm in, in McCarthy's time, I would definitely be thinking propaganda. But anyway, yeah. you know, the idea that, that students really so much need to be able to figure out what they believe based on, because that's democracy. I always say to kids when I see them, and I hand out green feathers when I'm at schools, which we can talk about in a minute why I do that. But I always say, you know, I don't care which spectrum side of the spectrum you're on. I just want you to be a participating member of this democracy because that mm. is what is required of us. And right. to have a, you know, a comprehensive debate. Right. And yeah. there's this great quote from um, Murrow, Edward R. Murrow, who kind of became my, um, my hero is that we must remember that in America, dissent is not disloyalty. We were based right. on dissent um, and the and the and discussion of you know n um, disagreeing ideas and finding the compromise that works for all of us. You know, e plurimus unum, right? So, um, and I'm sorry for just and now I've lost what you originally, originally asked. <laughs> well, let me, me. <laughs> let me just jump in here for a second and just. Uh, want to remind the audience that we're not actually talking about a, a civics textbook or a history book. We're talking about uh, a novel. Thank you. And it's actually uh, a quite an entertaining and engrossing and suspenseful novel thank with you. some very, very vividly drawn characters. Maybe we, we could talk a little bit about the story That's of your book. That's a good book. idea. Yeah. Uh, thank you. <laughs> you saved <laughs> me from getting on this political track here. Um, <laughs> thank, thank you so much. You know, I, I had such fun writing this novel um, because I very much was thinking Holden Caulfield in some ways, you know. Oh, right, that, sure. That wonderful peevish boy um, voice, right, you know, of, of the teenager trying to find his way. So, um, yeah, I, it was such fun to write because they are two, you know, two extremes in terms of one being from a quote-unquote conservative or a more traditional, I should say, forget the traditional family um, in the United States, and another one being, you know, very international and very kind of cosmopolitan in their thinking. Richard is very much a reader who has been, um, you know, he jokes about, uh, you know, the crumb bums that he knows at school and the girls who won't talk to a guy who, you know, that they'll date the guys with duck butt hairdos and won't talk to a guy <laughs> who talks about Sam Spade, right? You know, so that was kind of fun to have that banter. Um, his friend, Vladimir, um, was, you know, he is the coolest of cool, right? He is a a jazz saxophonist, reads everything, has been to New York, lived in London. He immediately has a copy of Casino Royale that Richard doesn't have yet. And um, the suspense comes from 
um, as their friendship grows, there are things that he, that Richard, the FBI son, sees within Vladimir's home that is progressive, that is artistic, that is, um, you know, they read books and such that, that um, would be banned in the local library, um, that Richard begins to misinterpret and to begin to be suspicious about. And um, because of the, um, his dad is an FBI agent, he really wants to be a G-man. He really wants to get the bad guys, right? The, these guys are his heroes. He begins... Um, uh, dealing in rumor and innuendo um, by the little things that he's found in the house that at the time looks like maybe the mother has been involved in some espionage, but there's a whole different element to it. Um, and the sisters are great foils, I think. There's a younger sister named Ginny who wants to be, and she is an in, um aspiring camera girl. She wants to be a reporter. Um, this is back in 1953. She wants to be just like Jackie Kennedy was before she, uh, Jackie Kennedy married. Um, and so there's a, there's a near drowning, there's um, spy stuff. Um, and then, oh, and a shooting. I kind of stumbled on that event that I didn't know had happened. So they are in the middle of it, one of the first shootings that occurs. Um, yeah, it's a shooting right in the yeah, Capitol Hill. Yes, and um, so yeah, I hope there is a lot of suspense, and I hope a lot of humor too. There are a lot of just dumb bunnies that you <laughs> kids will recognize, um, like the you know the alpha girl who uses one to try to date the other, and you know, right? It was, sure, it was it was great fun. It, it, it really is. A, it's a great little story, and it's uh, we got we got heavy-handed very quickly in our discussion. Yes. <laughs> but but I just want to remind our readers that it is a, a novel. It's fiction, um, although it is uh, entrenched in in real time and in in a real um, you know a, a real yes, era a historical novel. Right. Yes. Um, and and so it's a lot of fun to read. It's not uh, it's not a thick, dense um, you know like a historical account of, of these things. It's it's actually. Uh, like you said, there's there's some humor and there's some adventure and excitement and it's it's really fun to read. Um, so that kind of brings me to my next question: If what you you started out more a journalist, how was the transition into fiction writing? You know, it wasn't that hard because actually, I will add to what you just so kindly said. The thing about good historical fiction is that kids will learn stuff without knowing that they're learning it. They're just reading a good story, right? It's right. almost it's by it's magic. It's like osmosis, right? They're just um, all the little wonderful revealing details that you stick in there, like um, you know what they drink or what they're eating or what their, their clothes look like, uh, which were ridiculous at the time, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, those are all things that kind of give them the context, but they're just worried about the characters and the story. So um, I actually found, I think because um, as a magazine journalist, I was doing what is now called, I'm old now, uh, it, it joke, it, I laugh about hearing it called creative nonfiction, um, that there are MFAs in this now, which is wonderful because what they're doing is teaching the techniques that a lot of us were using for years and years without it being, you know, called anything specific, that was really honest to God, started by um, Truman Capote with um, uh, In Cold Blood, where he, um, I mean, that is that kind of uh, nonfiction narrative that's told um, 
with fiction technique. In other words, you tell a story with scene and anticipation, and you don't always explain to readers what they're seeing. They need to think of it themselves. It's a wonderful narrative of all these facts that he collected. And I used to do a lot of um, narratives where I would follow a subject for a month, say, um, and write a lot of scenes of what I witnessed. I, for instance, was um, wrote about the first woman um, to receive a bone marrow transplant to um, to um, treat um, breast cancer at a hospital here in DC. So it tells you it goes back a ways. But I was there for the bone for the marrow harvesting. She was kind enough to invite me into her life to let me wow. witness that, wow. so I could really describe it. So I had done that kind of writing for a long time. So the segue into writing highly researched historical fiction was was relatively easy. I just mm. I actually plunged straight from suspect red to my wonderful editor at the at HarperCollins telling me to do something about Hamilton. <laughs> Anything oh, really? about Hamilton, yes. And so <laughs> Hamilton I, who? <laughs> I I got that assignment. I literally just sent back the final galley on Suspect Red and I started researching and writing that novel about Peggy Schuyler, the youngest of the Schuyler sisters. It's a biographical novel is the term that we're now kind of using, which I'm really grateful for in this case. Um, did that in 10 months because I could do, because if, if I am anything, I'm a good reporter. Um, I did it for long enough. I, 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 I feel privileged and love the hunt of the research. Um, that's where you get all the really great, I always tell kids when I talk to them at schools and they think I'm crazy, but the fun stuff is the (laughs) research. (laughs) It really is because you learn all these details. And like with, um, Richard and Vladimir, um, there were so many little things that I could, um, drop in there that came specifically from the research that just kind of told me things to write. Like for instance, that shooting or the fact, it's a fact that Hoover, I'm sorry, Hoover and LBJ lived on the same street, just sort of catty corner to one another, which is just such a tremendous irony to me. But that told me to, you know, to include um, little details about LBJ and that kind of thing um, in there. And I'm trying to think about other little details. Um, oh, some of the stuff about uh, Hoover, which is a whole other conversation for us to have. But, right, um, right. You know. <laughs> well, you he- know, b- before we get too far, I, I do want to bring up, we're get, running a little long here, but I, I want to make sure that I talk to you about the fact that, uh, and this was very interesting to me in the book, uh, so I'd hate to, to miss it, uh, the role of art in in what you've written here. Uh, it's interesting that the, the, the mother of the family who's, who's being um, spied on uh, is an artist, and one of the things that they find interesting and, and, and find suspicious about her is that she's friends with other artists and there's an art exhibit that is being investigated. And it's interesting to me, probably, I guess, because I'm an artist, uh, that, uh, um, that the government or that, you know, um, that people find art to be so powerful and such a good way to spread ideas. Yes. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, you know, the State Department, and they've done this quite a lot, actually, over the years. You know, one of the they they'd use jazz, for instance, to um, <laughs> right. to kind of, you know, in, uh, get communist countries to people there to um, embrace music. Right. And and the kind of free nature and individualistic voices 
um, allowed in in our society. Um, so there was this art exhibit that they had actually collected of modern art um, artists um, who tended to use bold primary colors and um, be a little bit more abstract in their presentation or very um, emotive, meaning really focusing on the emotions of the subjects of workers, for instance, right, and what their life was like in America, much like... Um, Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Uh, Steinbeck, who I so love, you know, who was banned. Mm, right. Oh, and you know, let me just go into, <laughs> let me go into what opens the book, if I may, because again, it is quite powerful. And if we really want to spread ideas, we often do it through art, right? Um, and music and literature and dance. Um, I opened the book, talk about something that I just stumbled on during my reporting, the fact that Robin Hood was banned, right? right. Robin yes. Hood was banned yes. because of the fear of the power of that story, that it had this subversive undertone of Robin Hood and his merry men taking from the rich and giving to the poor. That was a communist philosophy, right? Mm, so there right. was this, you know, there, there was a textbook uh, commissioner in Indiana who banned it and in fear Gosh. because of all the guilt by association and pressures from community groups um, against people who were deemed being subversive, you know, and these loyalty review boards. I mean, we haven't even gotten into all that. Uh, not enough time. Um, the um, immediately women, um, sorry, librarians began pulling Robin Hood from the shelf. Now, the great thing about this, and this is the power of young people and art, as you ask, there was the green feather movement. There were some, there were five college students at, in Indiana who the banning of Robin Hood was like, that was the final straw for them. That that was where we had gone from, you know, to the total ridiculous, that we were going to mm, be right. banning Robin Hood. So <laughs> they, they went out to local farms and collected huge burlap, back, burlap bur, bags full of um, um, chicken feathers took them back to their dorm rooms, dyed them green, and started passing them out like the Merry Men feathers in oh, protest, this wonderful symbol, this kind of lovely little artistic symbol of, you know, um, freedom of the press, right? And right. freedom of yes. speech. And how banned book um, and censorship can be so um, ridiculous, right? right. Um, and there's Absolutely. a wonderful quote actually from Eisenhower saying that the best way you can, quote unquote, in essence, know your enemy is to read what they write. You won't mm. be turned by it. You will be enlightened by it. You will be able right. to see the world for what it is. Right. Sure. Sure. So anyway, I love. So that's why I hand out my green feathers um, and the green feather movement. Just by the by, those five kids were vilified by local press called, you know, commies and fellow travelers and pinkos and subversives and radical long hairs. And they weren't. <laughs> They're pretty conservative kids. But the the Merry Men movement and the Green Feather movement started spreading to colleges across the United States. And they were actually Merry Men um, marches, which I have Natalia mention um, that she's going to be in one at the end yeah. of the book. And it, it really goes to this power of... Um, you know, of literature and story and art and ideas. They're Absolutely. dangerous. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite quotes is, is from an, uh, uh, an art historian, uh, John Ruskin, who says, the story of man is written in three books, 
his words, his deeds, and his art. And uh, of the three, the only you can, tr- the only one you can trust is art. <laughs> I love that that quote. Yeah, it's a beautiful quote, and it's because art makes sense of it. It puts context to it, and it puts hope, our hope, to mm. things. Right. Very inspiring. I right. mean, it's one of the most. A wondrous things about human beings is our is our desire for hope. And actually, speaking of Steinbeck, you know, who was banned constantly and then ends up winning the Pulitzer. Um, but, you know, they were burning copies of his um, Grapes of Wrath. He right. says that a, a writer always has to believe in the possibilities of man, uh, the perfectibility. I'm sorry, ah. that a, a good writer always believes in the perfectibility of man. I love it. Well, this, is, uh, this has been a fantastic uh, discussion about the book uh, Suspect Red by Laura Elliott. Go pick it up. Uh, this brings us to our, our speed round here. Um, <laughs> I, I, right. So, so we have a, a battery of questions that we give to every one of our guests. And, uh, and, and here it goes. Are you ready for our speed round? I'm ready. <laughs> okay, here we go. When, Hurry. <laughs> when was the first time you remember falling in love with a book? Oh, gosh. When I was, I think I was four or five years old when I discovered the Beatrix Potter books, all, all of them on my shelf at home. Peter Cottontail. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. Um, has a book ever changed your mind? Oh, God, I should have. Uh, about. About anything. Yes. And I, you know, and here I'm going to completely not be able to give you a, uh, an answer as to which one, but I, my. I read to learn and to change always. Mm. So a book always opens such vistas for me that I know it will change me in many ways. Fantastic. Has a book ever changed your life? Um, I think writing one book changed my life. Yes. Um, the, that first book I mentioned to you called it's under a war torn sky it completely changed I will tell you all, those of you who want to be writers and might be struggling a little bit with it, I didn't write my first novel until I was in my late 40s. So Under a War-Torn Sky changed my life. That is fantastic. I love yeah, that. That's a great, a great thing, a great way to answer, I think, is, is to, to mention actually writing a book changing your life. That's, yeah. uh, that's good. Okay, great. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> has a book ever made you cry? Oh, all the time. Oh, my God. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yes. Um, I I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just said good. I, I think that's great. Oh, I'm always crying. I'm such a sap. In fact, my, <laughs> my kids, I do a lot of reading of other books, too, before I write my books often. Um, and my kids have laughed. I have to tell you, there are many World War II novels, for instance, that, that they will, I hear them close. They used to close the door in my office to say, because I would have my head down on my, ta- on my desk weeping over oh whatever it was I just read. And they would close the door and say, Mom's researching again. Don't bother. The <laughs> dark time. It's good for you. I think it's very good for you. Uh, um, yes. And I will, I will also just tell you that both my kids have become um, creative artists themselves. One's a screenwriter and one's a theater director. So. Oh, oh wow. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I'm very proud of them. So um, has, uh, let's see, uh, name a book that you have read more than once. Um, you know, the one that I've just read again um, is Codename Verity. I think I've read it four or five times. Do you know it? It's by um, Elizabeth Vine, and it is this staggeringly potent and wonderful and amazing account of two women who are, um, I don't want to give it away because it, it, the twist at the end is so surprising. Um, a a pilot in World again? War II. 
can you repeat the title, please? Code Name Verite. Oh, okay. okay. Nice. It's an amazing read. I probably read it five times in the last, I don't know, eight years. Powerful endorsement. We'll check that one out. Um, and, and here we come to our final uh, and most controversial question of, of the battery. Uh, Are you now or have you ever been? <laughs> <Yeah. I remember. laughs> I'm just going to take the fifth there. Thank you. <laughs> um, no, actually, it's uh, do you have any poetry committed to memory? Uh, yes, actually. Um, one thing that I, is my mantra is hope is a thing with feathers that perches on the soul and never that asked. Emily Dickinson. I think that might be the second time we've, we've, the second guest who was. Yes, that that's one. right. We, yeah. we had another guest who also mentioned that great, yeah. interesting great poem. No, Wonderful. It's, it's kind of my daily mantra. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really, really fun conversation. It has been my great pleasure, and thank you so much for um, uh, attacking all aspects of this book, and, and <laughs> I really appreciate it. And yes, well, thank you for... And congratulations on both your books. I will be getting oh, them. Thank you. Thank, thank you very you. much. Well, this has been a, a conversation with uh, Laura Elliott about her book, Suspect Red. What, what is next? You said there's a book on Hamilton. We also mentioned a book on Berlin. Yes, the book on Hamilton is out. It's called Hamilton and Peggy, A Revolutionary Friendship. And I have to tell you, Peggy Schuyler was astounding. She was fluent in French. She um, rushed into the fray of an attempted at kidnapping of her father to save her baby sister. She's just mm. badass. Um, wow. So uh -huh. there's that one. And the one that I'm working on now is actually kind of spawned to be in, a companion to Suspect Red. The working title is Walls. And it's about the Berlin Wall. And wow. it's same okay. two kinds of two boys, on uh, one an East German and one an American army brat. Um, and what happens when the wall actually goes up. Beautiful. Uh, overnight. And actually, just so y'all y'all know, I'm, if they're looking for me, they need to look for L.M. Elliot. Yes, um, L.M. Rather than Laura. Um, although hopefully there would be cross-referencing of me and computers. So anyway, thank you all so very much. Well, so was, you do have a website. Um, so tell, tell our readers where, where to go. Yes, and there's a lot of stuff about McCarthyism and Suspect Red on that. Um, it's L.M. Elliot, so L-M-E-L-L-I-O-T-T -T dot com. Fantastic. Two well, L's, two T's. Yes. Yes. <laughs> thank you. And while you're on your computer, you can go to pov-publishing.com where you can uh, listen to our past podcasts. You can, again, you can uh, read comics by world-class artists. You can read poetry and essays. And you can follow the links to find my book, Why So Much by Lance Myers and LB's book, The Goddamn Fool. The Goddamn Fool. <laughs> so thanks a lot for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Uh, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.